Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Okay, I have been really interested in the question of nuclear power and how it could play a role in sort of climate change and the larger energy debate. Uh, But I have to confess, like, this is not something I actually know anything about. Uh, So I was really excited to sit down with Jessica Lovering, who is a real expert on this. We had a great conversation about both the sort of big picture nuclear, you know, topic and its history, but also diving into what's happening on the cutting edge of technology and like what you would need to do in policy terms to support new nuclear developments as a zero carbon source of power. Uh, I, I learned a ton from this conversation. And if you're anything like me, I think you will too. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Jessica Lovering, is a uh, grad student at Carnegie Mellon, uh, formerly head of energy policy at the Breakthrough Institute and a fellow at I forgot where you were fellow Energy at. for Growth Hub. Energy for Growth Hub, <laughs> here yes. In um, here in D.C. Here in D.C. And she is here to talk to us about nuclear power, which I know is a subject that uh, has been of interest to a lot of people in the audience, uh, to me too. Uh, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so here's the, the, the nuclear landscape as I see it is uh, some people, environmentalists, don't like nuclear power. A lot of other people say nuclear power is zero carbon. And if we want to be serious about climate change, we should embrace nuclear power. I, by just like gut instinct and my like broad understanding, that that sounds correct to me. I would like to advocate for a role for nuclear power in the clean energy future. But I said I don't actually know anything about it. So like other other than to say the people trying to shut down existing plants are wrong, which I mean, I think they are. But But I think there's a lot of political. I mean, things are controversial, but I I don't see like smart people taking the other side of that. But I do hear a lot of people saying, look, like new nuclear electricity is very expensive. Solar costs have fallen. So like, what's what's the point? Why do we need nuclear power? Yeah. So I think there's a new generation of people working on nuclear now, and it's really disrupting some of these narratives around nuclear. So in the U.S., the industry has been pretty stagnant. You know, we haven't been building nuclear plants for 30 years. Most people that live near nuclear plants maybe don't realize that. Um, But it is 20% of our electricity now. Mm -hmm. And if we're serious about doing some real decarbonization, so getting our carbon emissions down to zero, we definitely need nuclear. And that's been motivating 
a lot of people, even people that have been traditionally opposed to nuclear, to kind of reconsider their positions. And the big, the big picture is really, you know, we've had amazing growth in renewable energy and wind and solar, and that's great. We're going to need even more. But when you take nuclear off the table, it makes the challenge of fighting climate change so much harder. And it's already pretty hard. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, we're already not making enough progress. We're already moving too slow. So why would you want to make it even harder? Uh, and so when you look at models or scenarios that include nuclear or don't include nuclear, when you include nuclear just as an option mm-hmm. in your energy system, it's faster to decarbonize, it's cheaper, it's easier to balance your grid. So that is starting to convince people, but there's still a lot of questions and challenges with nuclear. I mean, the the high-level math on that, right, is right now most of the electricity comes from fossil fuels. Yeah. So it would be a lot of renewables to replace that. But also the aspiration is to electrify a lot of things that aren't currently electrified. So you need more than 100% of existing electricity to come from zero-carbon sources. If we're thinking, which we should be, of electrifying transportation, Mm -hmm. industry, heating, we're going to need so much more electricity. And so it's not—we should not be thinking of it as nuclear versus renewables. It's both and more of both, a lot more of both. And then then in developing countries, right, if you you take economic development and— poverty and things like that seriously, like, they are going to need, they're going to want at least, like, a lot more electricity than they currently have. Yeah, and they're still, you know, have rapidly growing demand for electricity. They have a lot of people who don't have access to electricity. And for them, when they're looking at how do we meet that demand, they're just looking for the cheapest option. I think we're still sort of seeing um, a disconnect with people in the climate community of disappointment every year about new coal plants being built mm-hmm. in East Asia um, or in South Africa. And it's like, well, what else are they going to do? Like, they right. need electricity. And nuclear can be a good replacement or a good substitute for fossil fuels because it's large scale, it's reliable, it runs 24-7 for 40, 60, 80 years. Mm -hmm. And so for those countries, um, that can be a good option. Right. I mean, it would be convenient, I guess, from a global climate goals perspective if people in East Asia were like— say, fine, we'll be, like, subsistence rice farmers with no electricity forever. But that's not a super realistic— Yeah, it's not realistic, and it's also— Or humane. Yeah, I humane, mean, it doesn't, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense as, yeah. a, as a policy goal. And, and that's a big part of um, the work that's going on at Energy for Growth Hub mm-hmm. here in D.C. is how is energy an input into human development mm-hmm. and economic growth? So thinking about it as not just, you know, something that people get when they're wealthy, but something that actually drives— mm-hmm. um, uh, wealth development in these countries and is very critical for that development. And so thinking about how low-carbon energy sources can fit in mm-hmm. to those mm-hmm. pathways um, is really important. It's really important to start now. Right. But so, I mean, what is it about the the cost question? Because, I mean, this does seem sort of compelling to me on a first-order level, right? It's like, okay, like, it's 20% of our electricity. Uh, it seems like what they're doing in Japan, where they're switching off nuclear plants and building more coal, like, that seems really bad. But if solar is now cheaper per gigawatt than, than nuclear, it's like, why Like why fight with other lefties? Like, why why spend the money? Why raise even the questions about the waste? Like, like why, why, why do we need 
new new nuclear if it's so expensive? Yeah, so solar and wind, their per unit of electricity cost is pretty cheap today. Mm-hmm. But that's because we have this big sort of pool of fossil fuels that can back them up and balance the grid. So in the U.S., natural gra- gas is great at balancing intermittency from wind and solar. So explain balancing the grid. Yeah, so wind only makes electricity when the wind is blowing, solar only when the sun is shining. Uh, and so maybe that's depending on the location, you know, 10 to 40 percent of the time. And so when you have those ups and downs, uh, you need to balance that out with something so that you're providing uh, constant electricity or electricity to meet the demand mm-hmm. from, you know, households and industry and commerce and things like that. So so right now, it's like gas will turn on and off. Yeah. And if, if, if renewables happen to be generating a lot of electricity at any given time, they just don't burn the gas. Yeah. And there's these whole systems um, of reliability organizations that manage this, you know, trade and flow of electricity, um, very complex system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is very dependent on having sources that are rampable, that can load follow, like gas. Um, Hydro is used for that in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, and nuclear hasn't been used for that, mm-hmm. for that load following. It's sort of run just constant all mm-hmm. the time. But in a future where we're trying to decarbonizing and shut down gas plants and coal plants, we're going to need a low-carbon source of electricity that can do that balancing. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think there's going to be an opening for nuclear in the future is right now, yeah, uh, wind and solar are are cheap because they're not paying for those system costs. When you start to get deeper penetrations of wind up to 40 or 50 percent, it's going to become critical to have uh, balancing. Right. So this is like in like economisty terms, it's the the cost of solar right now at the at the current margin is low. Yeah. But it's because there's not that much solar power. Yeah. Right. So just putting a little bit more in, you just you get more electricity. Yeah. But if it if as that scales up, you start to raise sort of uh conceptual questions about how does the system as a whole work. Yeah, and thinking more holistically about not just we need more clean electricity is that we need to lower the emissions of the whole system. Mm-hmm. You want to have a diversity of sources that can balance each other out whether it's but minute to minute or seasonally. Uh and so that's where you need more options. Right. And so and so uh, sticking some solar panels up someplace can be pretty cheap. Batteries are not that cheap and the cost has not fallen that much, and in particular doing seasonal store, right? Because, like, one thing is you store power because, like, it's dark at night, and then it's light the next day, and that's an easier problem to solve than, I don't know, like, Boston, it's just, like, it's dark most of the time for half the year. Then other times it's sunny, but... You, you need you need electricity in the winter. Yeah, and you also have, you know, periods, you know, a few weeks where it's not that windy mm-hmm. and doing that sort of balancing. If you look at these scenarios that do 100% renewables, they have huge overbuilds. Uh-huh. So if you need 10 gigawatts of electricity or of power, you're going to build 100, 200 mm-hmm. of wind. So you, you mentioned an example to me from a—it's a sort of funny edge case, but you were saying looking at like a small Arctic community. Yeah. And how much, how much renewable power— what would you need there? Yeah. So this um, community I was looking at currently diesel dependent. They run some diesel generators. And um, if you were to do it with a diesel generator or a small nuclear plant, it would be a few megawatts, um, like 
four megawatts. Um, but if you wanted to do it with 100% renewables and batteries, it's a few hundred megawatts. Uh-huh. And that's you have more batteries than you can even imagine. Uh-huh. Uh, just huge number, and um, you have a bunch of excess generation that you're just wasting. So these wind turbines are producing electricity, and it's not being used for a lot of the year. But you need all that to, to meet your, your critical demand. So, you know, there's places where it's just— Right. We're not going to work. Right, no, and and so that's like the key difference, right? Because if you're talking about, okay, if we had some more windmills that, and then we could use the electricity, like that's pretty cheap. But if you're saying, in, in this case, right, it's how could we build an all-windmill system? Yeah. And that becomes hideously yeah. expensive, and, right? And that's the, that's the basic issue here, that like you could double, you could quadruple renewable electricity, but to go to 100 – gets prohibitive. Yeah, and that's, I mean, what what renewables have benefited from over the last 10 years is that there's, you know, a lot of fossil fuels on the system. Uh And so when you look at a single country like Denmark or Germany, it's like, wow, they have 40% or 50% renewables on their grid. That's amazing. But they're relying on hydro coming out of Scandinavia or nuclear coming out of France or coal coming out of Poland to balance those intermittent renewables. And so... It doesn't really – you have to look sort of grid, whole right. grid scale. Right. And so and so hydro is, is good, but I, it, it seems like we've, like, basically built yeah. most um, of the dams that are promising. Yeah, and hydro plays a very similar role to nuclear right. on the grid, um, but we're, we're not going to build a lot more big hydro. Right. Whereas nuclear – I mean, so, so to build hydro, it's like you need the river. Yeah. Right. And nuclear can go anywhere, and that's where it's benefited countries in the past, particularly um, islands with big urban populations. So the mm-hmm. UK, Japan, um, coastal communities or coastal cities in China, um, where you have very dense populations that need a lot of electricity, uh, and they can't sort of have big areas for um, hydro or, or renewables or things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, but how how did nuclear come to be so? expensive in in the United States in particular, but I mean in a lot of countries. I mean, Europe has started to see see huge costs. So it's complicated. Uh Um, I would say the big takeaway is that we never really tried to make nuclear cheap, Um, which I'll explain what I mean by that. But nuclear, the technology sort of was developed in a time where you had a lot of state-owned utilities, a lot of big centralized programs to build um, out the power system, and that was great for getting things built. You know, we have 100 reactors in the U.S. Um, generating 20% of our electricity. Very reliable, very good record. But they were built in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. um, and they've been chugging along since. But because nuclear was this new technology, there was a lot of, you know, learning and mistakes made, and we're still sort of evolving as it was being built. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of pressure to control costs because people were building it because it was cool and futuristic and, um, you know, the future. And so there wasn't a lot of, of reason to control costs. And, and it sort of benefited from, like, Cold War yeah, slipstream, right? I mean, like, exactly. we, we, put, we send people to the moon for no real reason. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in countries that um, had really big nuclear programs like France— They built a lot of reactors, but they were from um, state-supported utilities. The reactor developers who are actually doing the technology were also state-supported, so very centralized control. Mm -hmm. Um, And that got a lot of nuclear built, and it's actually generating very cheap electricity now. But that sort of system would be very hard to do today when you have 
deregulated, liberalized power markets, they can't do those big investments. Mm -hmm. So um, the other big reason that nuclear got expensive is that it wasn't built like a commercial product. It wasn't built like an automobile or a Boeing 787. Mm -hmm. It was built like big infrastructure projects. So Mm -hmm. like um, the highway system or a big airport or a big bridge. Those sorts of projects, each one is unique and Uh different and the local conditions are different and it's new every time. And so it's really not surprising that we didn't see costs come down because each one was sort of its different own um, project. And where we do see nuclear costs come down is in places like not just France, but like South Korea, Mm -hmm. where they built a lot of the exact same design over and over again Mm -hmm. in sort of succession. Um, So they had, you know, the same construction crews kind of moving from plant to plant. Now, because of the way the U.S. market is, you have hundreds if not thousands of utilities, Mm -hmm. uh, we won't get that sort of standardization with big plants. Okay. And so that is really the motivation for this move towards much smaller nuclear going forward is that you could actually get that learning by doing, by building a lot of the same design over and over again and building it much more in a factory fabrication model rather than like a big infrastructure project. Okay, let's take a break and and then I want to dig into that distinction. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. What you're saying there, I mean, that, that that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, if you build sort of one-offs, 
uh, then the cost of each of them is is high. If you repeat something, I mean, anyone who's done anything more than once, <laughs> you you get better at it, right? Um, so why is it that making them smaller, like like what why does that what why does that make a difference in this regard, right? I mean, if the reason they each have to be bespoke is that the local conditions are different in different places, like aren't the local conditions still going to be different, even if my my reactor is small? Well. Not necessarily. I mean, you could design, think about an aircraft. Okay. Uh, If we're going to build, if we're going to design a new aircraft, Mm -hmm. like um, a new Boeing wants to build a new aircraft, they're designing something that can fly in a lot of different conditions, you Mm -hmm. know, cold conditions, stormy conditions. uh, So it sort of has operating parameters. Mm -hmm. So what you could do with a nuclear reactor, and this is what companies are doing, is um, you design a small reactor that can operate in a you know, a set parameter of conditions, these sorts of, um, you know, temperatures and geographies and things like that. And as long as your site meets those guidelines, then it's good to go, sort of plug and play. Okay. And the reason that you it could actually become a lot cheaper is that you wouldn't build them on site. You'd build them at a central sort of factory. Okay, right. So, I mean, so this is always a big difference, right? Like the one issue with just like houses, right, is we, we build them on site and uh, it's something I was looking at, but it's like the productivity in the house building yeah. industry is terrible yeah. compared to productivity in the car manufacturing industry. And it's seemingly because the difference between factories and going to yeah, that's specific a, locations. Yeah, that's a really great analogy for the power sector. And you right. see this not just in renewables, which are Factory fabricated, mm-hmm. 100%. Solar panels, that's how costs have come down. Um, wind turbines, but also natural gas turbines mm-hmm. are factory produced. Um, right. And they're super cheap. Uh, and so it just, you know, for a lot of people, it just makes sense that if nuclear is to become cheap, it needs to go to factory fabrication. Right. So, right. So if you see people, they're they're putting solar thing together, right? They're not, they're not like there with a bunch of parts, like <laughs> hammering it together, right? It shows up on like big containers. Yeah. And obviously they do work on the site because you have to put it together. Uh, but like the, the panels are made in factories and the early factories uh, were not that good at making solar panels. Yeah. And they've gotten better and they compete, right? So it's like you have different different people with different, different factories and you could do, if the reactors are small enough, you can like put them on a train. Put yeah, in truck. and there's there's resistance to this in the sense from from the older guard in the industry of well you lose out on economies of scale with these small plants, mm-hmm. you know how would we license mm-hmm. small plants? You couldn't you know how would you deploy them? All sorts of um, concerns, but those are things that I think people looking at this policy need to be figuring out, and I think they can be figured out. You know, we can license them like we license aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, the scale will work out because you'll get learning by doing on the factory assembly line and so costs will come down. And so it's a very different industry, though. And so nuclear has never been done like this. It's never been sold as a commercial product mm-hmm. that you could sort of order and it comes to your site in 18 months. And thinking about doing nuclear that way could be very disruptive. Right. So so there's there are people, right, at their their companies, their enthusiasts, their investors who are sort of working on these issues. But from a from a policy perspective, it's like if if I want to not just like fight on the internet, 
but like I, I, I want to um, be constructive and say like, yes, like this is a good idea. We need to explore this technology. Like what would that mean? Like what are the, the levers that, yeah. that need to be pulled to sort of – if the engineers and technologists and innovators can, can make this work, like what, what do they – need in a, a supportive policy environment. So I think the big thing that's been missing for nuclear, people just have a sense that nuclear has had a lot of government support over mm-hmm. the years, and it has been not in the right way. So it's had a lot of support for R&D mm-hmm. at sort of the basic science level. Mm-hmm. But what's really been missing is demand policy. So wind and solar have benefited hugely from demand size policies, um, like production tax credits, like renewable portfolio standards at the state mm-hmm. level. Um, a lot of tax incentives um, that get, that create that demand pull at the market level. Nuclear's never had that. And if you're moving towards a smaller nuclear design, you could actually see policies that would make a huge difference. So some things that we're starting to see and that if we saw more of would really help nuclear is things like changing um, at the state level, changing renewable portfolio standards to be clean energy standards. So we've seen this sort of thing in Illinois, in New York, um, maybe sort of in Ohio, and California's um, SB100, which is a state target to get to 100% clean energy. It's most notably clean energy, not 100% renewables. Uh, Although it's 60% renewables, but that last 40% can be whatever. Um, those sorts of policies create um, create market pull. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether if you had a federal production tax credit for new nuclear, we do have that, but it's 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 limited mm-hmm. for new nuclear or investment tax credits or things like that um, would create the pull that really drives firms to innovate, to invest in factories, to bring costs down. So that is what brought costs down for solar was really demand, a lot of it out of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um but you start to see economies of scale when you're building a lot of it. And that is what um, I think would really bring costs down for nuclear. And mm-hmm. we've never really done that for nuclear. So it's not surprising that it's expensive uh, when we're just building sort of one at a time here and there. I will plug now the episode of The Impact, also on the Vox Media Podcast Network, that was about uh, Germany yes. and, lear- <laughs> and uh, demand-side subsidies, learning by doing uh, things like that. And, and so you're essentially saying that same dynamic if you made nuclear eligible Right. If you if if you reframed it from renewable portfolios to yeah. zero carbon or whatever you want to call it, uh, but it, it's the kind of thing that like I think to a normal person it would sound like the same thing. Yeah. Right. But like actually, that's a critical policy distinction. Yeah. Um, but so then, like, like what about the licensing? Because I mean, it does seem like okay. You're saying, well, we haven't treated it like a commercial product that you can order, um, and we really haven't. <laughs> because I mean, I imagine if somebody was like, "Hey, I just got, I just got my nuclear reactor on Amazon. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna put it up, uh, you know, out back." Like people would freak out, yeah, right, and and like that, that can't be legal. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, not now. You can, you can. Um Buy nuclear materials on Amazon. Well, you okay? This is bound to be a regulated sector of definitely, the economy, definitely. right? I, they're not going to let people just like random people throw nuclear reactors around willy nilly. Yeah, and so there has been a lot of effort um, through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh-huh. which is who regulates nuclear in the U.S., um, to sort of reform the licensing process to work better for new nuclear for advanced nuclear. Okay, and Sometimes when people hear that, they think, okay, we're loosening regulation. Uh It's going to be 
you know, easier means less safe. Uh But the reality is that we have a lot better tools to evaluate safety now. And then a lot of these advanced nuclear designs are just intrinsically safer by design. So they're easier to regulate because you're not relying on sort of redundant engineered systems to manage your safety. It's sort of natural physical processes. And that's great, but right now the regulations for licensing don't really work with that sort of thing. They're sort of they're very prescriptive. It's like, well, you have to have, you know, X pumps and you have to show this and this and this. Uh-huh. Like, what are you doing with your water coolant? But a lot of designs don't use water as a coolant. So there's been a lot of effort to reform and make regulation that works for non-light water reactors, so advanced nuclear designs, and that's sort of coming through. And there was this legislation um, that was enacted last year called the Nuclear Energy Innovation Modernization Act, and that focused on sort of reforming the licensing process. But to get to your point about, you know, having lots of nuclear uh-huh. in more places, I think we can regulate nuclear like we do aircraft. Aircraft okay are very dangerous. I mean, look at how people have used them for nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. A lot more people die in aircraft accidents every year. You know, pretty much most years, no one dies in nuclear accidents. There's Mm -hmm. been just a handful in the last 30 years. Aircraft are very heavily regulated. And um, I think nuclear could be done in a similar way where we have, you know, you have to do quality assurance on the factory fabrication. Um, they have conditions they can operate in. You have um, sort of understanding of, of what can go wrong and how to mitigate that. But um, as you deploy them and you see how they operate, you sort of learn from it. And But I guess the point is that aircraft are not – they're heavily regulated, but they're not regulated on a plane-by-plane basis, right? right? Once they decide the A350 – is, is good. a good yeah. plan, and they make a rules about okay, how big do the runways need to be? Yeah, right. So there's like a set, there's a set yeah, of but standards. you still like, do have you have regulations on you know how you do inspections, right. what conditions they can fly in, that sort of thing. Right. I think that's that's a similar thing that you do, for, right? So for so, so there are rules, right? Yeah. So it's like this type of airplane we have decided is safe. Yeah. This type of airplane can go to this type of airport. This type of airplane can fly under these conditions, but then you can just do what you want, right? If if nobody is flying them to Denver, but Denver meets all the qualifications, you can do it. And when you have a standard reactor design, you can do that because you can license the design and say, okay, this design is safe, and if it operates this way, it you know, good to mm-hmm. go. Um, and if there's a concern, if it's like, okay, well, you can't use it. Underwater. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So so you could make rules. Yeah. But you could say, okay, this works, and these are the circumstances under which you're allowed to use yeah. it. And then you can, like, apply for your permit. Yeah. But in the, in the U.S., historically, when every single plant was unique and different, the regulation, you had to look at each one separately. Mm-hmm. And that was what made it costly and, and and challenging. Right. And so if my business proposition is, well, I'm going to make lots and lots and lots of small ones, yeah. if I'm getting piece-by-piece piece approvals, like, it's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. Because I can't line up customers. I can't, right? Yeah. I, I can't do anything. How, how Like, how small are we talking about? So uh, there's been a, a lot of focus in the last 10 years on small, what we call small modular reactors. Mm-hmm. And a kind of definition for that is anything under 300 megawatts. So just to put that in perspective, like a typical nuclear power plant today is about 1,000 megawatts. Mm -hmm. Um, And is that similar to 
like a typical coal plant? Yeah. A uh, typical coal plant, at least if you're building a new one today, would be about the same size. Gas plants tend to be a little smaller, like 600 megawatts, mm-hmm. 500 megawatts. Um, so nuclear small modular reactor would be under 300 megawatts. Now, the plant, the design um, that's farthest along in the U.S. is um, New Scale. And that one is pretty unique in that it's 50 megawatts. Okay. So that's very small. Yeah. Um, but they're... Power plant design is to deploy them in multiples, so like a 12-pack or a 6-pack. And when you add that up, that's like 600 to 700 megawatts. So that's more like a traditional power plant size. But the individual reactor modules, 50 megawatts, that is easier to mass produce. And then you kind of string them together. And so you get some economies of scale, but also economies of multiples. And they're hoping to be cost competitive with gas. Or they're targeting to mm-hmm. be cost competitive with gas. So, so the idea there, right, is, is that the facility would be similar in scale to... A coal plant, yeah. To, yeah, to like current big plant designs. But because you're not building a single giant reactor, you could have a factory that makes them... And then you ship them, yeah, to, and and assemble to the destination. So hopefully you'll get more a more efficient uh, fabrication. Process. Yeah, and there are really big gains when you're manufacturing something much smaller. So mm-hmm. especially for traditionally water cooled reactors, when they're really big, you have to have this thing called a pressure vessel, which mm-hmm. is a really big like metal container. Okay, and forging something that big is just very hard to do. There's Uh only a few places like Korea and France where you can do it. But if you're shrinking it down to something, you know, less than a tenth of the size, there's a lot more facilities that can forge something like that. And then because you're shrinking it down, there's also, you get rid of some complexities. The design can be simpler. You don't need four pumps. You only need two pumps. Maybe you don't need any pumps. And so you're saving a lot um, on cost in... uh, by making the design simpler. So the the sort of basic story here, right, is so so traditionally it was thought that make like to make a reactor at all was so challenging that it was better to make a really really big one. Yeah. And so Just then, do it once. And so then a lot of secondary stuff related to the reactor also has to be really really big. Yeah. Um, but if you can make the reactor itself smaller, then you can use smaller or fewer. I don't know, like bells, yeah. and, bells and whistles, yeah. right? So I, I'm basically, right, it's, so it's like you have water going through to cool the thing. Yeah. And then there's all this very hot water. And so, it has to go somewhere. Yeah, so let me give you a, an example that, or an analogy that I heard um, recently from a friend in, in nuclear is if you're going to move a shipping container mm-hmm. of cargo, mm-hmm. you probably want to use a semi-truck or an 18-wheeler. Right. Um, and that has a lot of systems. Like it has redundant tires. So uh-huh. all the tires are double. It has redundant braking systems. It has hydraulic brakes, all these complicated things. Now, if you want to move a much smaller unit of cargo, maybe 20 pounds, you don't just take a semi-truck and shrink it down mm-hmm. to one-hundredth of the scale. Mm-hmm. That would be very silly. Uh-huh. You make like 18 tiny wheels. Right. No, you might use like um, a motorcycle. Right. Which is very different and a radically simpler engine, but it's much better for transporting 20 pounds. And so there's people who would say, well, you're losing out on economies of scale. The per mile cost might be higher mm-hmm. of the motorcycle. But it's like, no, we don't need an 18-wheeler 
for 20 pounds. And so thinking about what's appropriate mm-hmm. and what makes sense for the smaller size. Right. Um, right. So exactly. So, we, I mean, it winds up to for, – for, like, moving physical objects, we actually, like, we use conveyances of all different – kinds yeah. of size, right, depending on what, like, what we're doing uh, here, right? And so you're saying we we just, like, we can go an order of magnitude or two down yeah. from where this has been happening traditionally uh, if you can solve the, like, engineering problems specific to the, the reactor, which yeah. is what these companies have been doing. Um, okay, let's, let's take another break, and then, then I want to talk about the micro. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Okay, so we were just talking there about 50, maybe 300 megawatts. Maybe you make the reactors small, but then you bundle them together. Uh, but but you, you've been doing some some work on, like, like, really small nuclear. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really taken people by surprise. Um, there's a lot of companies working on advanced nuclear in the U.S., like over 50. The think tank Third Way here in D.C. keeps a map of advanced mm-hmm. nuclear companies. And there's a lot of movement towards really small nuclear, so what we call micro-nuclear. There's not a good definition or a good cutoff, but I say kind of anything under 10 megawatts. And a lot of the designs are more in the few megawatts, so, you know, one to two megawatts. And for for comparison for people who are, are not used to thinking in megawatts, a typical mm-hmm. big wind turbine that you might see, you know, in mm-hmm. the Midwest or in California is two megawatts. A single turbine. A single turbine. Okay. So nuclear at the scale of a single wind turbine. And um, because nuclear fuel is very dense, mm-hmm. um, a one to two megawatt reactor uh, could fit in one shipping container, maybe two shipping containers. So it's much more easier to transport. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar to SMRs, um, in the motivation is mass production, standard design. But when you get that small, it can be very disruptive to how you think about deploying nuclear. It yes. opens up a lot of different markets that haven't been open to nuclear traditionally. So mm-hmm. even SMRs, you know, a reactor that's 200, 300 megawatts, that's probably still utility scale. Right. Um, you might be building a few of them to replace a natural gas plant or something like that, but that's still a very traditional um, model of deploying nuclear energy, mm-hmm. um, kind of similar to, to fossil fuels. Right. But when you get down to, to a few megawatts for a nuclear reactor— that looks very different in what the market is and how you would deploy it and how you would finance it. And Yeah, so what am I going to do with my, my micro-reactor? Yeah, so right now the kind of first markets that these companies are pursuing are really off-grid. And the reason is that a lot of off-grid 
power systems today are diesel-powered. Sure. Um, because you need uh, something dense and you need something reliable. So island communities, um, off-grid communities in Canada, in Alaska – uh, have these these diesel systems. So we're saying off-grid in this sense being, not like metaphorically I'm going off the grid, but like literally yeah. you are far away from other yeah, things. Yeah, it's too expensive to run those power lines out to you right. from, from the central grid. And so what they're doing right now is you're putting diesel fuel on boats, uh, Yeah, barges, on trucks, trucks, yeah. And you're running it out to big generators. Yeah. And that's super duper dirty. It's super dirty and it's also pretty expensive. Right. And so it looks like a really good market for a micro-nuclear because you would save these communities a lot of money and also reduce local air pollution. Right. So, so even something even something that would look expensive to yeah. a mainstream American utility could be cheap yeah. for a small town in Alaska. Yeah. Like it wouldn't make sense to build one in Chicago. Right. It would be too expensive. But for an off-grid community, it could be very cost-competitive. Now, that's a small market. Sure. Um, but if it works there and you start to build several of them, you might start to see costs come down. And mm-hmm. then the other place where these might make sense is places that are willing to pay more for reliability, mm-hmm. for resiliency. So the big one that the U.S. government has been focused on is Department of Defense installations. So military bases, defense sites where they want reliable power and resilient power in case of an emergency, they can run their critical system. Mm -hmm. So right now, a lot of defense installations domestically have big diesel generators that Mm -hmm. are just for backup in case sure. the system goes down, the power I mean, system goes down. And so, I mean, this is like people in rural areas often yeah. like have a diesel generator even, in the basement. And even, you know, now I'm from California, and okay. so even now after we've been having a lot of um, power outages, people are starting to get diesel generators a lot more. Right. So this um, is not quite that micro, but this is, micro, but this is like yeah. your army base could have a micro reactor in the yeah. basement. Um, of a, and I don't you'd know probably you'd basement. probably run it all the time, uh-huh. but you'd have a system where you could island your critical services. And what I mean by that, I'll give you a more um, concrete example. So let's say in San Francisco, you wanted to um, make your power system resilient to a natural disaster like an earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have a microgrid within the city that just powers. Uh, you know, the police stations, fire stations, the hospitals, maybe the communication network. Mm-hmm. And that could, um, you know, run all the time integrated with the grid. But in an emergency, you flip a switch and now it's its own system that can mm-hmm. keep running. And mm-hmm. so having a micro reactor for a system like that might make a lot of sense where you run it all the time. It just generates electricity like nothing else. But then in an emergency, it becomes critical. Mm -hmm. And so there's systems like that where it might make sense. The other ones are college campuses, which Mm -hmm. sometimes have their own grids. They're interested um, in sort of owning their power, Mm -hmm. big hospitals, Mm -hmm. places like that where having reliable power is not just a good thing, but it's very important to their mission. And the sort of economic assumption here is that the the upfront costs would still be relatively high. I mean, like, you have to buy yeah. a nuclear reactor instead of, like, plugging something in. Uh, but the, the operating cost on an ongoing basis is reasonably low. Yeah, and they run for a really long time. Right. So if you're an organization that can make long-term decisions like right. that, like a military base um, or city, that might be very attractive to you. Right. And so 
You know, one just example um, that I've been looking at and getting excited about is college campuses. Mm -hmm. And to put it in perspective, so a, a microreactor of this size might be like $10 million. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. Right. But if you look at some of the um, big philanthropic donations to universities uh -huh. to have, say, a building named after you, yeah. it's in the hundreds of millions right? Right. Well, universities so, yeah. raise and deploy capital funds on that scale so, all the time. Yeah. So that's not, you know, it's on the scale of building, you know, a new complex at a university, a new sure. building. So it's not out of reach for for the this sort of community scale. So, right. So you could say, okay, well, we're going to have, you know, the so-and-so nuclear yeah. somewhere. <laughs> um, but is this safe? Like, this sounds, I, I, I mean, I, I have been, like, not front-loading nuclear safety concerns because, I don't know, you, you Google it. Just, <laughs> just read anywhere. Like, it's fine. Um, lots, way more people die from soot than nuclear meltdowns. Um, but if you're talking about I still think the presumption right now, so you got like a big nuclear facility. It's like off in the edge somewhere. There's like all this concrete everywhere. It, it feels it feels reassuring to me in the way that like, oh, well, in the middle of campus, like next to the cafeteria, we've got, I don't know what, like there's like uranium trucks showing up. <laughs> like, it sounds a little, it sounds a little off-putting. Yeah. Well, I mean, something to keep in mind is if it if it's not safe, we're not going to build it. So you know, it's going to sure. go through licensing. We're gonna, have, they're going to have to prove the case. But no, I mean, I, I agree. Yeah. They're, not, yeah. they're, not, they're not going to put unsafe nuclear yeah. reactors on college campuses. But like, are they safe? Yeah. So to that point, shrinking them down in size, uh -huh. uh, you can actually have safety that's much more built in okay. to the design. So the one here's one example I'll give that I think. Um, my mom really likes this example because she can understand it. So uh, traditionally to cool the reactor, reactors are very hot inside, yes. and you need to move coolant through them. Um, with a really large plant, uh, what, you do that with pumps. Okay. So you have all these pumps, and in an emergency— Because you, you have to move so much water. You have to move so much water. You need to make sure those pumps run all the time, and it's really important if there's a power outage that you have backup generators, diesel generators, to keep those pumps going. And that's what happened in Fukushima is they couldn't keep the water pumping. Right. So with a lot of these small designs, they don't use pumps, so they don't use the same kind of pumps because they rely on um, physics to okay. do the cooling instead. And so the example you can think of is if you're boiling a pot of water. Sure. The I've water does convection, uh -huh. you know, the— Hot water at the bottom comes to the top, and it kind of cycles. And that's what happens in a lot of these reactors is that you're relying on natural processes to move. So even okay. if the power goes out, you shut the reactor down, it's going to naturally be cooling itself through that process. It doesn't need to have all these redundant pumping systems. Um, and that's just that's one example of how these are safer and simpler at the mm -hmm. same time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that I think once— People can kind of get their heads wrapped around that uh, could increase sort of public approval and, and mm -hmm. public confidence in the safety of these systems. So, but what, what about the the fuel and the and the waste? Like, yeah. what, what, what are we envisioning happening? So, likely it depends on what the business model is for different companies. Uh -huh. But um, the fuel will be handled not, you know, at the college campus. Uh, it'll be handled <laughs> by some central facility. Sure. And so a lot of these designs are looking, especially the microreactor concepts, are looking at much longer lifetimes for the fuel. Okay. Meaning lifetime of fuel in the core. Okay. So some of them are um, sealed so that you deliver them with the fuel inside. Okay. You never open them up. 
They run for maybe 10 to 30 years. Okay. And then you don't come and take the fuel. You come and take the whole reactor back to a central facility. So it moves that waste handling from being an on-site thing, which is currently how our big nuclear plants work, to being something that's done at a central, you know, secure facility that's used to handling sort of bulk loads. Okay, so that's one idea is like basically it's like a 10-year— It's like a battery. It's like a 10-year nuclear battery from the—at least from the user's perspective. Yeah. It comes, it works, it works for a while, and then it goes. Yeah. And you don't have any ongoing refueling And that's also a very different sort of paradigm for nuclear because you don't have to have all of these highly trained nuclear staff on site. You have kind of people that are more power system. You know, they make sure the electricity— you know, goes to the grid, they're not sort of monitoring the operations. And sure, you're, so you're not actually, like, I don't want to say you're not doing anything. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's not all this, like, ongoing nuclear material handling yes. occurring. Yeah. That just happens every once in a while. Presumably those guys, they, like, work in an office somewhere. Yeah. And they, they come out to different places in any given day, but on site you don't have those specialists. Yeah. And and also just thinking about these large nuclear – the large traditional nuclear reactors, again, mm-hmm. they employ a lot of people. Sure. Which is good – for your local community, but it's also very expensive sure. to have a thousand people working at a plant. And so when you get down to really small reactors, you can't have that sort of staffing. Staffing. Sure. So they're going to have to be designed to operate with much less right. staff. And what that means is you probably have a lot better monitoring and sort of instrumentation to be tracking sort of what's going on in the mm-hmm. reactor all the time. So and maybe no, it's so no Homer Simpson in the yeah. <laughs> And maybe it's monitored at a remote facility, so you have someone sitting in, you know, an office in, I don't know, Kansas City looking at a monitor of all their, you know, 1,000 micro-reactors sort of watching. Sure. So you're monitoring them all. You're sending the guy uh, 10 years up. Um, We've got to schedule the— yeah. Uranium pickup or whatever it is, um, but but the, I mean, there's there's still, there's still like a waste disposal question that yeah, has definitely. been sort of hanging over nuclear in the United States for for a long time, and that seems like I mean, it doesn't necessarily get worse if you shrink the reactors, but certainly if you use if instead of twenty percent of our current electricity, you're going up to thirty five percent of a larger electricity yeah. universe. Um, We still got waste. Yeah. Yeah. So I think of waste as a parallel issue to new nuclear, advanced nuclear, even existing nuclear. It's something that um, it's not a technological problem. Okay. We have lots of different things we could do with waste. Uh, It's that um, we really need political leadership on a solution. Mm -hmm. And so we need to figure out a solution to nuclear waste, no matter what. Even if we phase out nuclear, shut down all of our nuclear plants, we still need to figure out what to do so with the waste. So we still have the waste. Already have. So that needs to be going in parallel. And there has been some movement. There were some hearings um, in the House last year around sort of restarting the process on waste. And or my sort of MO is that innovation has really helped you know, nuclear power. Uh-huh. We also need a lot more innovation in nuclear waste uh-huh. in sort of figuring out um, better ways to recycle the waste, make it less um, radioactive, safer to handle, things like that. And we're starting to see more ideas. There's actually some startups, some private companies looking at ways uh-huh. to deal uh-huh. with nuclear waste. And so um, we probably need a little more focus on on that side as well. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, we need to, we need to, Start moving on on nuclear waste. And particularly, that is a lot of people's opposition to nuclear is, well, 
we just have all this waste sitting around. Like, should we really be building new nuclear? Uh-huh. We haven't dealt with this waste. So, no, I, mean, I agree. Like, we should do. We should right. figure out something to do with it. I mean, I would just also think from a like an investor perspective, right? I mean, the, whether it's a technical problem or not, right? Yeah. The fact that there's this unresolved political controversy about it would make me Hesitant, worry yeah. about the sort of long-term prospects of anybody's business around that. Like, I don't necessarily care as a potential <laughs> financier what the solution is. But, like, if you're telling me, well, right now, it just kind of piles up. Because yeah. that's what yeah. they do, right? Yeah, it, it piles up. And and the thing is, Department of Energy has an obligation to take control of the waste, and they haven't. So it's just sitting at sites. Right. And several states have prohibitions on new nuclear that are contingent on the waste problem. So right. we can't have any new nuclear until we have a solution to nuclear waste. And so it needs to be addressed for a lot of And to reasons. like your whole like microreactor, that whole hypothetical, right? So I'm right now I'm like I'm working on the engineering problem. I'm, I'm trying to make the thing work. But yeah. also somebody else in the office is like, okay, how's our business going to work, right? Who are we going to sell this to? What services are we going to provide? And Right now, there's just this, like, huge question mark. Yeah. Right? It's like, well, I'm going to pick it up, and then I'm going to do what it—you need there yeah. to be an—and it needs to be a regulatory answer, right? Because, like, it's really not up to me as, like, the business model guy to say, like, where can I put this expired nuclear reactor? Well, if you had a, if you had a facility that was making the microreactors and mm-hmm. you're going to take them back, you mm-hmm. could also— be working on a plan for how you're going to handle your waste or process it. Right. And it might be, you know, we're going to wait and see because we have 10 or 30 years before right, we're right, actually right. getting any of this waste back. But there are a lot of different options. You know, France does reprocessing of their waste. It all gets recycled once. Um, and that reduces the volume. And then they put in these canisters in the ground. And so, like— What, what, what does the reprocessing mean? Um, so, at a really high level, nuclear yeah. waste is— troublesome because uh-huh. it has a small amount of something very dangerous, um, plutonium, mm-hmm. U-235, and then a bunch of stuff that's not very dangerous, but uh-huh. it's all mixed together. So okay. you have stuff that lives for a really long time, mm-hmm. and you have stuff that is very radioactive but actually decays very quickly. Mm-hmm. And But it's all in one piece. So you have something that's very dangerous now and then also needs to be controlled for a long time. Right. So when you do reprocessing, which is breaking up all the mm-hmm. pieces, you're separating out those two components. And so you um, reuse the highly radioactive stuff. You put it back in mm-hmm. reactors. You mix it with with fresh fuel. Um, and so the waste that comes out at the end is not so radioactive. It's a much smaller volume. It's easier to um, – you know, handle and, and come up with a long-term solution. So it's long-lasting but less dangerous. Yeah, it's long-lasting, but it's like sort of a like a warm cup that's just sitting in the corner. It's, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. You can so, handle it. Okay, and, so and I'm like we're, we're trying to remember high school physics, right? <laughs> so it's if you have if you have the shorter half-life, that's more dangerous. But shorter lift. But yeah. also your problem will go away yeah. eventually. Right. Whereas so if you have something that is both super duper duper dangerous, but also Mixed really in with t- stuff. That lasts, yeah. That's a much harder problem to solve yeah. than just two different problems. Yeah. Where it's one, it's like, okay, let's let, let's keep this safe. And then the other is like, okay, it's bad. You don't like want it in your yeah. water. But and then the and then the other aspect to throw that in there is that what we think of as nuclear waste, uh-huh. you can also call spent fuel, which is mm-hmm. the technical term for it. And sure. why that's important is that 96% of the energy of that fuel rod is still there. Okay. So it's actually kind of a waste that we're not using it right now. 
So um, there are a lot of um, people working on ways to recycle the fuel. So France does once through recycling. Uh-huh. So they use, you know, they use their fuel twice, essentially. Okay. Um, and they get twice as much energy out. But you can keep recycling it in different ways, different reactor designs, um, so that you're using it again and again to get sort of squeezing every drop of energy mm-hmm. out. And that could produce just a lot more energy from nuclear fuel in the long run. And Uh it also reduces the volume of waste to a teeny tiny amount. So that would be like, it's like the equivalent of like increasing the efficiency of your combustion. Yeah. But for, say, nuclear fissile materials. The other thing I I want to talk about before I let you go is um, uh, waste heat, right? So you get electricity from a nuclear plant, uh, but also, like, so many of the problem, the logistical issues, deal with the fact that it's really, really hot. Yeah. But making things hot is actually sometimes, like, what we what we want to do. Yeah, and that's um, something where nuclear has a really unique ability to contribute to clean energy systems. Mm-hmm. So right now there's a lot of industries um, that need what's called industrial heat. Mm-hmm. And there aren't really good low-carbon options for that. Mm-hmm. So now it's, you know, natural gas or coal in a lot of cases. Um, and nuclear produces a lot of heat. And right now, we just waste it. Mm-hmm. So we kind of vent it to rivers or oceans or into the air. Uh, and a lot of the new nuclear designs that are in development right now are looking at harnessing that heat. Mm-hmm. So particularly like high-temperature gas reactors um, are looking at partnering um, with industrial heat applications. So that can be like um, wastewater recycling mm-hmm. or um, you know fertilizer production. There's a lot of things that need heat. And so you could partner it where you're making electricity and using that heat. So you're getting a lot more useful product out of your reactor. Mm-hmm. And you're also helping to decarbonize other industries, not just the power sector. So right. you're, you're you're addressing these other sort of uh, lacuna in the, in <laughs> yeah. the union. And there's also um, the other thing is combined heat and power or district heating, uh-huh. where in colder climates um, you could be using that waste heat to heat homes, heat businesses, and again that sort of decarbonizes more of the. Um, energy system, not just the power sector. So I, th- I think district heat is a little unfamiliar to most Americans, right? So like the way we normally do heat in the United States is each house has like a thing and you set gas on fire yeah. or, or oil if you live in New England and you're living like animals. Um, <laughs> and and it creates hot water and, you know, that, yeah. that heats your house, it, you know, you can you can have a nice shower, uh, but in principle, and in some places here, and and also in Europe, it's like you have a really big centralized source of what steam, hot water, something. Yeah, and pipes of it go, go into your house mm-hmm. uh, or your apartment, and that gives you the the heat that you need. Yeah, it's it's much more common in Europe and particularly big cities, but it's also something that's pretty common on college campuses around the US um, is to have a, what's called a physical plant that makes steam and mm-hmm. also steam for heating and also for cooling. Um, and so when you have those systems already in place, that could be a good place to first um, build a small nuclear reactor because mm-hmm. you already have the infrastructure built out to deliver heat to all your buildings. Um, but it's also something if we're looking at doing, again, if we're, if our goal is deep decarbonization, right. it's not just power sector. Right. We need to be thinking about solutions for 
um, heating, for industry, for transportation. And so that's where nuclear might have a unique contribution. Right. I mean, you could even imagine these sort of micro reactors being used primarily. Or the thought would be, okay, the reason really that we need this is to provide heat to a neighborhood. Yeah. And the electricity is like a co-benefit. Yeah. And particularly for, for nuclear right now, the way the efficiencies worked out, about a third of the energy goes to electricity and the other two-thirds is wasted. Right. But if you're using that for heat, I mean, two-thirds is going to heating and one-third is electricity. I mean, more of your your energy is for heating. So right. it could be you might even have applications where all of your energy is going to heating if it's an industrial application. Sure. And so, But I mean, just in general, right? So it's like the, the, the heating problem is more technically challenging. Yeah, and you have really. less options. Right. Yeah. Um, because the... The renewable heating scenario, it looks it, – it, it's not great. Yeah, um, it's very inefficient to do heating with electricity. Right. Whereas if you have something that generates both heat and electricity, that's a really good solution to the heat problem, even if the electricity costs are a little bit on the, on the high – because, I mean, yeah. it's – the electricity is cheap if it is also – meeting your other needs. Yeah. Right? So that's a sort of big thing. Um, okay. Um, uh, I, I like to ask people, uh, but before the, the show wraps up, uh, you know, what what should I have asked you here? What what do you wish we'd, we'd gotten into? Well, you, we didn't talk about fusion. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we didn't talk about thorium, but that's okay. Um, okay. Well, wait, can we, t- let's talk about thorium. Because Andrew, Andrew Yang yeah. likes to talk about thorium and then people sit around and they say, what the heck is this guy? Yeah. Um, if you're in the, if you're, in the nuclear community, so th- we kind of refer to thorium as the gateway drug for nuclear power. It's how a lot of people get interested. Okay. Um, it's sort of <laughs> talked about as this silver bullet solution. It solves all of nuclear's problems. It's okay. amazing. Um, the reality, thorium is a fuel. Okay. Uh, it's like uranium, but okay. different. Uh, it's not a reactor technology, although certain reactors are better at using thorium, like molten salt reactors. A lot of okay. them use thorium. Um, and it has some benefits, and it has some challenges, and there's people working on it. Okay. And, uh, yeah, maybe we'll see some. See, I think it's fine. It's fine, yeah. But, but, there, but there's, there's no, like, thorium magic. Yeah. And there's also people working on um, partial thorium fuel to go in existing nuclear reactors, and that has some benefits, and that's cool. Like, you okay. should keep working on that. Um, accident-tolerant fuels, things like that. So, yeah, it's one of, of, of many And what's options. the benefit? It's, um, it's safer? It's, it's, it's more abundant. Okay. And um, it produces less... Um, waste in some ways. Okay. <laughs> but more abundant. That's, that's, yeah. a good, that's a good enough reason to look into it. Yeah. and But it gets a lot of people really excited. Yes. And, and that's fine. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? Thorium? No. I would right. say Fusion. There are private companies working on Fusion. Um, we might see something cool happen there in the next 10 years. Um, it's a little farther out than a lot of these fission reactors that people are working on. That's not like right at now. the at the like public policy frontier though, right? Like, yeah. We don't need poli- we don't need policies to help fusion. They actually need to do research. They need to yeah, and, demonstrate yeah. that it works. Okay. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> All right, Jessica Levering, uh thank you very much. Thank um you for having uh, me. where uh, can people you you have a website? Yeah, website is jessicalovering.com or you can follow me on Twitter at j underscore lovering. Okay, fantastic. Great places to uh, uh, check out everything you need to know about this. Uh, so thank you so much, Jessica. Uh, thank you, uh, Malachi Brodis, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, producer, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday.
Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.